Greetings, everyone, and thank you for joining the conversation. This is your host, CJ Ward, and I'm joined here again today with the awesome Dana, Dana Branham. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing today, Dana? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Looking forward to the weekend awesome. already. <laughs> hey, likewise, it's around that time of year, so Absolutely. I understand. So, uh, you know, now here at a, a conscientious conversation, the term is it only requires two or more willing individuals, and it's an open and honest conversation, a conversation with the intent of proving the quality of life for the entire country and not just for select groups of this United Nation. So let's have a seat and discuss. So today, Dan and I are joined with the awesome Dr. Ricky Jones. Dana, would you mind introducing yeah. our prestigious guest today? <laughs> Absolutely. So Dr. Jones is the director of the Pan-African Studies Program at the University of Louisville. I believe you're in your, is this your last year as director? Did I read that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay. and I, I would I would say this, for because people who are in higher education understand Pan-African Studies at Louisville is actually a department, not a program. Gotcha. So it's one of the oldest Black Studies departments in the country. Got and I'm it. the chair. And, and yeah, so I'm coming up to the end of my chairmanship. Okay. Well, you've done an awesome job there. And so I'm sure we'll get into some of what the work that you've been doing there. But he's also a Morehouse man, a proud Morehouse man. Yes. <laughs> proud <laughs> member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, activist, um, author, father, um, citizen, productive citizen, right? And so we are glad to have him here with us for this conscientious conversation. Hey, thank you, Sister Dane. I appreciate y'all having me. You know, much love. It's always good to hang out with family. Much love to the Morehouse men out there. <clears throat> much love to the noobs. Much <laughs> love to Black Studies scholars all over. Much love to Black people. Much love to Brother C.J. Ward. And he said, he told me <laughs> if I did this show, he was going to give me that fly hat that he went to get. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he put man. you on the spot like, right there. He, hey, put, he put, put me on the spot. spot. Everybody knows I'm a hat guy, so, you know, I got you, man. Yeah, that's a nice one there, brother. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. Try to, you know, keep style and also just for the, you know, state of black males and not just black males, but males, period. It's okay to be masculine and, uh, you know, also have style. So, yeah, no uh, doubt. <laughs> so, uh, so today. Thank y'all for doing that, for being that. Oh, no problem. Thank <laughs> you for the acknowledgement, sister. Real, real, yeah, real. We, we, we appreciate the affirmation, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, today, uh, you know, don't want to waste your time. I know, you know, busy schedule, especially uh, this time of year. So I, I appreciate you for making time for us. Uh, no, I, I had the opportunity to meet you a few times. And uh, it was one in the panel in, in uh, Lexington and also uh, one time in Louisville. Uh, just from this, I wasn't able to come up just because of schedules and everything. But uh, I always was like very articulate, knew who he was. So it's definitely a sense of self-worth and also a sense of giving back. So, uh, you know, during your time at uh, University of Louisville and uh, especially uh, with not only it being a department, but an actual department, what are some of the things that you have seen over the years as far as just community, how it's changed, how it's gotten better or, you know, things in between? Hmm. That's that's a broad one, man. Um, I think. You know, again, first of all, thank you all for having me. Thank you for inviting me. It, it, it is not even a question of just, you know, making time. My thought is, if you don't have time for Black people and the endeavors that, that we try to put forth to change the world, 
and change the world for ourselves, change the world for our children, then, you know, what are you really doing? So none of us should ever feel like we're so high and so busy that we can't do that. You know, I hear people all the time, man, talk about, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm like, yeah, okay, let's, let's let those cliches go. Um, you make time for things that are important to you. And certainly yeah. you all in our communities are important to me. Um, right. What have I seen change? I'm, I'm finishing up my 20, I'm now my 25th year at the University of Louisville. So I got in this game pretty young, right? Um, <clears throat> finished my PhD. I was still in my 20s. Uh, but I didn't come to, to the University of Louisville for the University of Louisville, right? I, I have no emotional ties to the University of Louisville. I'm not saying that they've mistreated me. I think they've treated me like they would treat any Black person. I mean, you 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 hear and, and you may not be abused, but for the most part, you kind of disregard it. You know, mm -hmm. you, you're not doing anything to, to put them on their toes. But I came here... Um, because of the Department of Pan-African Studies, because I think Black Studies is the vehicle through which intellectually we serve the people, right? And so that that was very, very important to me. I have never sold the city of Louisville or the University of Louisville, the people I've tried to recruit to our department. I sell our department. We have a great um, um, intellectual family in Pan-African Studies. It's a rich, rich tradition running back to 1973. But what have I seen change? <sighs> You, you know, Brother CJ, I, I think, and Sister Dana, I think Louisville, no disrespect to anybody in Lexington or anywhere else in the, in the state, because as you all know, I went to graduate school at UK. UK was actually kind of good to me, gave me an opportunity that, that, that I, if I hadn't have been given that opportunity, I wouldn't have a PhD. Mm -hmm. But Louisville is to Kentucky as Atlanta is to Georgia, really. Sure. You know, that's Louisville is really the where, where black people are concerned. It's the cultural center. It's where you have the dominant majority of, of, of Kentucky's black population. But it still lags. So I make that comparison, though, the comparison is really not apt. Like people look at the election of Raphael Warnock recently in, in Georgia. They talk about Georgia becoming a blue state. No, not really. Mm -hmm. Georgia's being driven by Atlanta. OK, right. you talk about metropolitan Atlanta, not not Atlanta, the city proper, but metropolitan Atlanta, all those areas that mm -hmm. orbit the city. You talk about a population is right at six million people. The state of Georgia has about 10 million people in it. So 60 percent of the population of Georgia is in metro Atlanta. So that gives you an incredible, an incredible amount of social and political equity, you know, that power that you, yeah. that you have there. So it shifts things. Louisville is about a quarter of the population of Kentucky. Kentucky is right at 4 million people. So there, there are more people in Metro Atlanta, right, than there are in the entire state of Kentucky, but only about 25% in Louisville. And Louisville can't drive um, the state of Kentucky in the same way that Atlanta can drive the state of Georgia. So I thought, and then we can follow up on this as we, as we drill down into specifics. When I came here, I thought that Louisville was small enough to be manageable Big enough to be considered a metropolitan area, but small enough to be manageable and where you can make some serious changes. A lot of those things have not happened that, yeah. that I thought would happen when I came in the 90s. So I, I can't tell you racially exactly where Louisville is going. Hmm. Um, there have been a lot of missed opportunities. And so if, and I, if I can't tell you where Louisville is going as far as a positive direction is concerned, then the, then, the, then the state is a very, very different conversation. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. 
right? Yeah. Totally yeah. unfortunate that that's the case. Um, it's a big unknown all the time. Yeah, well, and, and you know, to be quite honest, I, and I've been telling people this for the last four or five years that Louisville, in particular the state of Kentucky, has to make a decision on what it wants to be. And it seems to me, as you look at it politically, culturally, socially, you know, ideologically, that decision has been made. Hmm. You know, you got a good percentage of the power brokers in the city, in the state, who've decided that they want to keep Kentucky a white ethno state. I mean, and that's 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 what they push for. So this is why you get the politicians who are elected from across the state. Right. This is why the last governor of the state, who was a, a virtual madman. Right. And he still yeah. didn't lose by that much when he ran for reelection. So it, so I think they're being successful at that in, in, in keeping this a white ethno state. But the times have changed. The world is moving along. Right. And so I think Kentucky is going to be in a pickle moving forward unless something radical changes because as the world becomes more cosmopolitan and ideologically progressive, and I'm not talking about, you know, that term used in politics proper. I'm talking about people who just trying to change the world. Right. I don't think that they're going to come to Kentucky and people and even natives who have those types of sensibilities, they're going to leave. So the brain drain, that that is going to happen moving forward in the state is going to be tough. I mean, I have a 13 year old daughter. I mean, I'm, I'm an Atlanta kid. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm still here because of my daughter. It is understood. You know, my daughter understands her mother and I, her mother who also has a PhD and she's a native Kentuckian. When our daughter graduates high school, she gone. She's mm-hmm. not allowed to attend college in the state. And right. you know, when that happens, I'll probably be out as well. Yeah. I'm one of those brain drain kids. <laughs> who, who left uh, a few years ago and haven't looked back um, mm-hmm. even. And I can remember I was sharing this with CJ um, offline that I remember when I graduated college, went to Howard, proud Howard grad. Yeah, hate you. <laughs> Say that, hate you, you know. Um, I had one of my brother's friends mention to me, um, so are you going to move back? And I was thinking at the time, heck no, I'm not moving back. I might have been in the word, but <laughs> um, I was not at all considering that. I did uh, stayed way longer than I wanted to or should have, and um, can't wish I had done it sooner. And because of feeling like, and this may be what you feel as well, total fish out of water. Not better than not you know, you're down level for me, not any of that, just a totally different mindset. And um, I couldn't let it go on any longer. Where are you now? I'm in Charlotte. Okay. Yeah. Up and coming. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you, CJ, where are you based on right now, brother? I'll have to say I, I'm literally in the same boat. Uh, I went to Tulsa last year, but I'm going back and forth from Oklahoma to Kentucky right now, just doing business. But mm-hmm. I had the same experience when I, I moved to Louisville in was it 2006. I was there for uh, 10 years and, you know, worked with the school system, worked with higher ed, actually at the university, uh, with certain community agencies. And those 10 years, I just knew, you know, certain people would come in like, you're still here? And I was <laughs> like, I'm here for the youth. I was like, I, right. I still believe, I was trying to believe in community. But then it got to a point uh, where I was just like, I can't take it anymore. It just felt like I was trapped. It was a ceiling that I could not get past. So um, even, you know, when I left out in high school, I was like, I'm out of Kentucky. 
because it was just certain things with the mentality that I'm just not that I was better than it was just certain things that I know it wasn't going to change. I mean, how long has um, a lot of, uh, you know, Kentucky's friend uh, McConnell been in office <laughs> and there's been some of the same things that, you know, continue to come on. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I definitely understand, um, you know, and I appreciate you for staying there as long as you did, because I'm pretty sure a lot of people have been impacted because of you being there. But there's a certain uh, mentality that just will not change. Uh, just as, uh, you know, the the flooding issues that happen in some parts of the uh, the city. There's a certain things that needs to be done for the water system to prevent that from happening. But what do you have to do? You have to go back, uh, you know, recreate some of those old structures to make sure the structure going forward will be able to handle the, you know, the water, whatever else the environment may bring. But just as it has done that with that, it hasn't done that socially. So, uh, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to, you know, somewhere else. You know, I'm still searching right now, um, you know, for uh, a community that uh, I not only share their mentality, but they also share mine. Because you can, you can have all the hope in the world, but if, you don't, if you're not around an environment that is hopeful, what's the, what's the use? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I want to be clear, too. You know, being in, in a physical space is kind of like being in a romantic relationship almost, right? You don't you don't want to romanticize it. You can't romanticize romance. There is <laughs> nothing perfect. And right. so you you know, you get people thinking this there's this perfect thing. They're gonna be jumping from relationship to relationship, looking for something that doesn't exist. Everything is gonna take work. And so, you know, I look at the physical spaces like that too. One question, uh, I mean, so for me, there were a number of things. On one level, I've been kind of insulated from a lot of that stuff because I work in black studies. I work in higher education, which is a kind of protective environment in and of itself. And I chose a Pan-African studies department. I'm a political scientist by training, but I knew coming up out of, of, of um, undergrad and then coming out of, out of graduate school, I was like, if I go back to an HBCU, then I'll work in a political science department. But if I go to a predominantly white university, I'm going to work in black studies because I got to have a situation where I'm going to be makes around my, my people every day. Right. That makes sense for me. And that's that's been good. And two, geographically for me, Louisville is still relatively close to Atlanta. So I get I have over the years gone home a lot. Right. Not as much since my grandmother died and my daughter was born. But so it it's it's almost like being a professional athlete. This is kind of my in-season base of operations, right? But I've never <laughs> yeah. really considered it home, to tell you the truth. So, you know, you, you, you do your work. But I think you all make, make great points. You're not saying that you're better than anybody. You're just saying that your worldview is very, very different. And, and It is different. And that's why, you know, people, people here all the time tell me they think I'm crazy and, and all that type of stuff. And, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> whatever, whatever you yeah. say, you, know, you have I'll a very clear opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you, you're mentioning, uh, you know, Pan-African Studies, the department at uh, University of Louisville. And when I hear that term, I can't help but think of W.E.B. Du Bois. So uh, just considering certain mentalities and talking about world worldviews, uh, you know, there was a sort of back and forth of uh, ideologies as far as with the black community. So you have, you know, W.E.B. W.E.B. Du Bois, and then you have Booker T. Washington. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. So, 
<laughs> what um, considering those two individuals, and I, I consider both of those individuals as influential individuals. Um, what do you think uh, the difference of their ideologies uh, were, and uh, which one do you think has been more embraced across this nation, or even particularly in the region? Second question is has an easy answer, and it's it's Booker T. Washington, who who's been much more embraced, but. That's a really, really bad reality, though, when you understand the history of what we're talking about. Right. You know, you in, in fact, not just the region, I would say across the country in black communities that have been dictated to by white communities. Like you will consistently find historically these Booker T. Washington schools in black communities. Then you ask yourself why. When you understand the history of these two individuals, of course, Du Bois, first first black person to get a Ph.D., from Harvard University, a titanic uh, intellectual. But what people people want to talk about Harvard all the time, but what they don't remember is that Du Bois actually went to undergraduate school at Fisk. And Du Bois talked about how going to Fisk was the place that gave him his racial awakening. Very much like me. People know I went to Morehouse my junior and senior year. I'm a Morehouse grad, right? I'm a Morehouse man. But my first two years of college, I went to the U.S. Naval Academy. That's how I got so familiar with Howard, Dana, because mm -hmm. I was in D.C. a lot because it's only about 50 miles away from Annapolis. Absolutely. Right. So but what, what Du Bois but Du Bois and people are, are, are pushed, they're, they're put off by this. Du Bois was an elitist. OK, we, we, we can't get away from that. I mean, he's a black man with a Ph.D. got a Ph.D. in 1895. He's teaching a higher ed. He's right for the crisis. He is really, really driving that conversation. He is an integrationist, but he is very, very wedded to black people. And he has the idea that black people should be able to uh, participate in America fully and completely as citizens through any profession that they would choose. Sure. It, here's where Washington is different. Here's where Washington. Well, here's where Washington's different. Washington goes to Hampton. Washington's mentors, General, General Samuel Chapman Armstrong, you know, the, the white head of Hampton, who has an accommodationist mentality. Hmm. His idea is that Black people should only have access to industrial education, right? And through that industrial education, they're going to hold the lower tier jobs and lower tier professions in the country, but they're not going to be the highly trained professionals, the lawyers, the doctors, you know, the presidents, the politicians, all of that stuff. That wasn't Hampton's role. Washington takes that same mentality to Tuskegee, where he becomes the president, right? This accommodationism. So think about this. In 1895, the same year that Du Bois gets his PhD from Harvard, Washington goes to Piedmont Park in Atlanta. They have the Atlanta Exposition. It's supposed to be a celebration of the re-rising of the South, right? Washington walks into this hall to give a speech. Only black man there. White people are looking at him like, what the hell are you doing here? I mean, they are, they are looking at him like they could kill him. When he finishes that speech, though, white women are literally giving him roses, so you got to ask yourself, what in God's name did Booker T. Washington say in that Atlanta Exposition address that had white people who were sneering at him when he comes in, giving him roses when he heads out? It was an, a speech of acquiescence where he, he literally talks about things like we followed, you know, your, your mothers and fathers with tear dimmed eyes to their graves. We'll make uh, prosperous the waste places that you leave us. 
You know, we will lay down our lives in defense of yours. We can be uh, as separate as the fingers in, in all mm. things social. One is the hand and all things for mutual progress. He is supporting segregation. He's supporting accommodationism. He's supporting a tiered society. And that's why Du Bois fights against that. But Du Bois wasn't the only one. Du Bois fights against it. William Monroe Trotter fights against it. Ida B. Wells Barnett fights against it. John Hope, who's the president of Morehouse College at the time, fights against it. So there are black people fighting, but do, but Washington is the most powerful black man in America until his death in 1915. So powerful. He is, he is so funded by rich whites, you know, northern elites, that he gave up his salary at Tuskegee. He didn't even have to take a salary. He was smoking fine cigars, riding his horse De- Dexter in the morning. So it makes sense, actually, that white America would push the ideology of a Booker T. Washington onto Black American. And unfortunately, over the years, a lot of folks celebrate Booker T and they forget what he really pushed, you know? So who's been more influential? Washington has been, you know, outside of certain circles. You talk Black intellectual circles, of course, you know, that's going to be Du Bois, but that's a small population of people. Remember, right at 2%, only about 2% of America's population has PhDs. Right. That's a small percentage of people. And only about five percent of America's professorate is black. So you're talking about a really, really small number of people. So that's a great question. I'm sorry I answered so long, but we could do a whole podcast on on Washington. Yeah. Yeah. People people need to go back and and read up on on Booker T and read up on, on Du Bois and read up on all the black intellectual contributors of the time. Yeah. So what's interesting about that? So part of my purpose here is to talk about the financial impact of all of that on black people, right? So if you think about those two ideologies and then what the impact is that Booker T. Washington's uh, ideology has been more accepted, what does that mean for us? Well, we know the answer, right? (laughs) But it's kept us behind um, point blank period. And so do you have any thoughts on even how we can overcome that Yes, there's a move for Black entrepreneurship. You know, Black Wall Street just opened, reopened in um, Atlanta. I see all that. And there's tons of different portals and apps and all of those things. But are we really doing what's necessary to pull out of that mindset, to pull each other up and to progress and be a success later? I don't know. It Hmm. seems that way, but I'm not sure we're pulling everybody, bringing everybody with us. So it then is that going to create this elitist society again, if there ever was one? Well, you know, there are a few, few, way, few things that I would contribute to that conversation. One of the good contributions that Booker T. Washington did make was the idea of Black economic nationalism. You know, he, he, he talked about that. He talked about this building of Black communities, but they still would be tiered in their interaction with white communities. Here's what I see happening with us right now, though, and I've been surprised by it, but I think it's picking up speed. First of all, we're always going to have elites. You, you know, there are always going to be some black elites. So let's let's stop talk, thinking about white folks for a second. Just black folk. There are always going to be black elites. The question is, how are black elites socialized and what will their mission be? You know, when Du Bois talked at the turn of the 20th century about the talented 10th, he was talking about roughly the 10 percent of black people who got bachelor's degrees. We still have not doubled that yet. Black women get more than, than about 20% of black women. 
of getting bachelor's degrees, probably about 17% of black, 17% of mm-hmm. black men, maybe a little bit less, actually. So black women are outpacing black men in that. But collectively, we have not doubled that talent to the 10th number in, you know, yeah, a century and a quarter, doggone yeah. you. You know, but so but we're gonna have black elites. But here's what I see happening though with this race thing with black people. We are starting more and more, and it's understandable to start to kind of circle our own wagons. I think yeah. that 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 black folk across lines of class and even among black elites, right? are having more and more doubt about whether or not we are ever going to be prosperous and at peace Hmm. in an integrated society. Now, that's not me pushing that. I'm just telling you what I'm seeing right now. You know, how how it used to be really, really cool for black elites, at least to to brag about, oh, we're the only black family in this neighborhood. Right. Mm-hmm. You ain't talking to no black people who function like that anymore. At that's this true, point, that's a great thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that is a great thing. At this point, black people are becoming more and more conscious where they're like, look, if we're gonna be the only black people there, mm-mm, I ain't trying to do that. I ain't trying to send my kid to a school where he or she gonna be the only black kid. I'm not trying to send them through that trauma. Yeah. I'm not trying to go to work at a company where I'm gonna be the only black employee. I ain't trying right. to go, you know. I tell them, I tell them at, at Louisville all the time, right? Man. When they talk about black faculty. You know, you if you got a department at your university that is to- totally white in 2021, hmm. there's some intentionality behind that, right? Be. And so if you go out trying to recruit a black professor to come to your department and he or she comes in to visit and ain't nobody else black there, they are well within their rights and within their righteous, sane mind to say, Ain't no way, ain't no way in hell I'm coming to that department. I'm gonna be <laughs> right. by myself in that cauldron. Not gonna do it. And see, this makes sense. And I've been trying to tell some of the administrators at U of L, man. We I just found out a few weeks ago. The College of Arts and Sciences is the largest college at the University of Louisville. I'm just gonna use it as an example, but it's really it's it's illustrative of a lot of predominantly white schools. Right at 400 and some professors in the College of Arts and Sciences. 24 blacks, 24 black professors, okay? 10 of them are in the Department of Pan-African Studies in one department. So when you got that- Yeah, when you got that type of stuff going on, right? And so we're seeing black uh, parents more and more, they choosing to send their kids to HBCUs. I talked to one of my homeboys, Walter Kimbrough, some years ago, who's the president of Mm -hmm. Dillard down in New Orleans. Yep. And he talked about how these kids are coming to HBCUs now. And I'm like, why do you think that's happening? And he said, because plain and simple, these black parents ain't willing to keep sending their children to these schools and be mistreated. And that's happening in society all the way around. And so I think the economic thing is going to shift. I think the black people are going to start to more and more coalesce around one another instead of continuously making these demands or, or cries in the dark about, you know, integration, because there is no historical evidence that white people in mass really want that. And we see it every day that they don't. Yeah, Yeah, every day. That's that. I I tell you, uh, while I was in uh, Tulsa, I was working with OU, uh, University of Oklahoma. And uh, actually my 
my alma mater is actually University of Texas, uh, Longhorn. Mm-hmm. So you already know the rivals. But one of the things, uh, even when I went to Texas, I felt a certain sense of being separated, uh, not only just because of race, but it was another uh, the plethora of reasons. It's the same uh, on all these plantations, ain't it? <laughs> I, I'll, that part. So, it is. So let me tell you, this was my thing when I went to Texas. I was like, well, it's on a 40-acre space, right? So they were saying, you know, 40 acres and a mule. And I was like, well, I'm going to just go get my 40 acres and a bull. But at the mm. same, at the end, <laughs> I graduated and, you know, it's all about networking. It's supposed to be, right? Sure. Um, and, you know, after that, I just even saw even another sense of separation between uh, the Black community or the Black student uh, populace. Uh, but when I went to OU, I actually went into a department. You know, I, I won't even call them out. Um, but at the same time, I was the only black male in a agency of, I think it was 50 to 60 individuals. And the whole admin was white women. Now, the Hmm. thing is like the dynamic I've been used to because there's been several jobs that I've been on where I've been the only one and they didn't understand the sense of, okay, yeah, I'm here, but I took it as an opportunity. Let me advocate for these students they don't have anyone to advocate for them. So, you know, I took that sacrifice. But one of the things when I was at OU, I had to uh, I forced uh, a policy for the diversity and inclusion because I was telling them about, uh, you know, <laughs> last year was the first, well, this year was the first year they decided to celebrate Black History Month at this particular agency. And it's been in uh, business for over 40 years. And of course, you know, when black history comes along, most of the agencies and other places, they come to you and say, all right, well, educate everybody about black history. And I'm like, black history is not just black history, it's American history. So why right. are you just putting on black history, uh, black people? And then plus, are you looking at it more entertainment or are you really looking at it as education? So uh, for the first time <laughs> in my whole uh, you know, professional career, I decided to back out on it and not, you know, lead it. And I told him, you know, for the first time, I was like, look, you all do the research and you bring uh, bring forth information of, you know, the the great things that black people have contributed to this uh, this society and how they built this this country, really. And, uh, you know, it was a different kind of response. They went with it. But, uh, you know, my thing was at the end, is it really entertainment or is it education? And uh, also I was telling them because it was actually a trauma-informed care uh, department. I was like, do you realize every year you're saying, all right, black history, but every year we're getting re-traumatized because you don't Mm -hmm. talk about the advancements. You don't talk about the good things. It's always slavery and going forward to at least to civil rights. There's nothing really outside of that when it pertains to that. Most of these, uh, you know, programs and, uh, institutions uh have have you experienced that at all and um you know uh <laughs> it's it's giggle, so i think it's a yes yes yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> look bro cj they can't even have a, a a a serious conversation about slavery in in the process of moving up you know to the modern civil rights movement the the lack of I mean, Booker T. Washington was right. Not Booker T. Washington. I'm, I'm sorry. But we go back, um, uh, miseducation of the Negro. Mm-hmm. That it's, it's the miseducation of Americans, period. Right? It's, it's miseducation of, of the Americans, period. 
America's educational system is so broken when you talk about it's broken in so many ways, but it's certainly broken when you talk about race. Right. And we talk about black folk, you know, all these fools running around here, crying, bloody murder about critical race theory. And, and I tell them every time they call me up about it, every time I speak about it, every time I'm on a panel, every time I'm on a, a, a television or radio show and they say, well, what about critical race theory? I'm like, I'm not talking about critical race theory because that's not really what you're talking about. What mm-hmm. we're really talking about is your attempt to maintain white supremacy in American education. That's what you're really talking about. Right. Speak on and that. The, and the right. effects of white supremacy in American education. And I, and I have to be cl- clear. I don't know, much, know how much time we have left. When I talk about white supremacy, man, I'm talking about the belief of one group of people who believe they they and they alone, because of their race, because of the color of their skin, have the right to think, know and decide in everything. That's white supremacy. You know, where all the power lays with one group to think, to know and decide. So whatever space you in, like the space where you were, you don't, you're the only black person, no matter what ideas you got, you got to have some white people going to green light it. You know, look, I'm brilliant. All right. I don't mind saying it. You know, I, and people, oh, you're arrogant. It's enough brothers that y'all done broke down to the point where they walk around looking at the cracks in the sidewalk. So, Listen. so right. <laughs> don't, don't feel that way. You know, right. I, I ain't that Negro. Right. I'm not that Negro who's going to come in. Well, I can't speak for all black people. If you ask me, well, what do black people think? I'm going to tell you, I speak for every black person on the planet. <laughs> right. I'm telling you exactly what, what, what we feel. Right. But th- these people don't teach anybody anything about black folk legitimately. And so coming out of these school systems, white people got this tripped out, twisted superiority complex. Black people got an inferiority complex. And neither one of them know a doggone thing legitimate about our people. So I see a lot of these celebrations, man, during Black History Month. They are emptied out. They are emptied out because you can't teach what you don't know. I tell them in JCPS right now, you know, Jefferson County Public School System, they talk about we want to teach this Black Studies class. I'm like, who's going to teach it? Right. You ain't got the horses. Yeah. You you know, you, you ain't got the horses. So until you can speak to that, and that's a long doggone thing. But man, there are very few legitimate conversations. And don't talk to me about entertainment. Don't talk to me about sports. Don't talk to me about right. the rappers. You know, I, and I'm a sports fanatic and I still love hip hop. Talk to me about serious history. Talk to me about serious politics. Yeah. Talk to me about some revolts. Talk to me about Hiram Revels and Blanche Bruce and the fact that after Reconstruction, it took almost a century to have another black U.S. senator. Do you know how many black U.S. senators we've had? There have been almost 2,000 senators elected in this doggone country. Only 11 of them have been black. And then talk to me about the candidacy of Charles Booker running up against somebody like Mitch McConnell in the context of that and how that fits into history and current politics. Those are the types of conversations that I think that you could only have, you know, with any type of intellectual solidification if you really, really educated. And most people aren't. Ain't right. no, very, very few mature conversations about black people happen out here, man. Okay, so just talking about, you know, getting uh, the certain conversations. We're talking about economics. We're talking about black elitists and also uh, certain mentalities. Uh, I will bring up this name, Mansa Musa. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and to, you know, personally, I think it, I call it the Mansa Musa effect. Mm. Uh, when he went around, you know, going to different places and, just disrupting economic systems. 
I think that was the, well, like I said, personally, just my opinion. I think that was the the first time where other ethnicities, uh, other races, based on Blumenbach, um, I think that's the first time. Like, where where can we get all this money, and where can we? Uh, how can we attain this? And I think that was like the first onset of going in to the motherland and basically just pillaging all the, uh, you know, the great resources that it has, and it's still doing to this day. And I think that just brought that, uh, you know, whoever they is, I would say that, it's been across the world. And, uh, you know, when I say the Mansa Musa effect, uh, you know, I have gentrification in mind, hmm. where, you know, we were, as a community, shifting into certain areas, and, oh, uh, well, this is just a Black community, and then come to find out later on, oh, this is, uh, high real estate. So how do we get them out? Giving them, you know, payoffs, and then they they flip the the property for three times what it's worth. Um, how do you think that has really impacted the current state of not only blacks in America but blacks in the world? Yeah. First of all, everybody need to go check out that. <laughs> King from Mali, Mance Moose goes on his highs in 13, 24. I call him the first big baller. With <laughs> he's just right. throwing just out, it. Just throwing out <laughs> some of the gold. He's like, hey, take that. I mean, that he's a big baller. Right. And, it, and, it, and it changes everything. It, it disrupts the economic base. Let's get to your question uh, here. Let me say this one. I don't believe in economic essentialism. And, and what do I mean by that? Um, sometimes people think that everything boils down to the economic dynamics of communities and everything doesn't boil down to those material aspects. Uh, it kind of goes back to that classic Hegel Marx debate where, where Hegel is talking about, you know, ideas, your ideology is what really drives everything. Marx c- comes back and says, no, he turns Hegel on his head and says, it's the materials, it's the economics. I think it's both, right? Is, is that old saying says a fool and his money will, will soon part. I think a fool and his money rarely meet. And we talk a lot about economics because that's the system that we're placed in in America, in this naked capitalist system, which really and truly doesn't work for the majority of people. And people need to understand that. Right now, the top 1% to 2% of the population controls almost half of the wealth in this country. Less than 10% of the people control over 90% of the wealth. I mean, do those numbers on the flip side. So that means like 90% of the people are fighting for doggone 10% of the pie. Yeah. That's not sustainable. And that's why. So I think this is dying out as, as it goes on. But let's speak specifically to this, this dynamic of gentrification, because people think that that's somehow new. It's not. That's been going on for a long time. And it is race-based. It simply happens in different spaces at different paces. So mm-hmm. all of this around race. So initially you have these white and black people in these urban cores as cities started to expand. Whites didn't want to live around blacks. Let me just keep this very, very simple. Whites did not want to live around blacks. So they moved out. Think of it like as a ring. So you got this urban core, you got one circle. Whites move out to another ring. They established these quote unquote, you know, first tier suburbs, but blacks, who have been socialized to think of something is, is if it's white, it's better. The ones that could follow the whites out to those first tier suburbs. Whites still didn't want to live with them. So they moved out to second tier suburbs. (laughs) 
Some blacks would move out, but you still have this bleeding out of economic bases in the urban core, which then in most places, Louisville, Atlanta, all of these places became almost totally black and poor. And when you have that type of economic distress, you're going to have all kinds of other things that happen too. dollar circulates 18 to 20 times in a white community. Yeah. Dollar circulates less than once in a black community. Don't have the same services. No matter what city you go in, go to, be it Tulsa, D.C., right, Atlanta, you, you, you come to Louisville, go to the black side, go to the white side. Like you come to Louisville, you go to the West End, you go to Hurstbourne, Prospect. It's like two different cities. Yeah, it's completely two different. Completely yeah. different cities. It, and you hear these same stories all over. But once you deplete those urban cores, they become black, undesirable. Everything is driven down. But they're still the core, right? That's right. where your downtowns are. That's where, as, as time changes, all the, you know, the wealthier blacks are trying to move out. Then you get a situation where those property values get driven down. And then you get basically these prospectors, these white looters who will come back into those cores, buy up that property, shoot it up. They'll make it, quote unquote, better. But then they drive black people out. That's what, you know, it's, it's already happened in a lot of cities. Mm-hmm. It's now starting to happen in Louisville. Like, I think Atlanta is probably like the last refuge for black people. It's even happening there. You yeah. know, I go back home over to the West End in Atlanta, over near Morehouse. And I'm like, whoa, where'd all these white people come from? <laughs> right. That's how I feel in it's D.C. Not, yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's, it's not saying that white people shouldn't be able to occupy those spaces, but understand what's happening to the black people who used to occupy those spaces. Sure. And then the prices are driven up so high that the majority of black people do not have access to them anymore. Remember, the average, the average white family, if we're just going to stick to economics, average white family right now, earns a little bit over $50,000 a year. The average black family, a little bit over 30. That's just income. That's right. just income. All right? right. Let's not even start talking about wealth. So right. you see the transformation of these neighborhoods that used to be black, black dominated, and, and they've been they've been stripped down. And I think that's what you, the rating of them, whatever we've been able to produce, you know, by hook or crook over the over the decades of that type of segregation. Even that gets taken, and that's 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 disheartening. Absolutely, it absolutely is. Ooh, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot to take on. Yeah, man, and y'all asking me, y'all yeah. asking me broad questions, Dana, because y'all Negroes too smart. Right? <laughs> so you asking these broad, deep questions, and people gonna be listening. To hey, man, strap up, right? Strap up, strap in, so y'all can try to keep up with us. Yeah. What I was sitting here thinking when you were talking is, and especially that comparison on the wealth or the income, I should say, is then we have to have a conversation um, about loans, student loans, um, debt whether it's predatory loans or regular loans. Um, Mm -hmm. We have to deal with transportation. We have to deal with uh, education. All of that uh, stems from it. And so if you say, well, y'all could just buy in that neighborhood, right? So I'm a realtor on the side. I have to deal with that too. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't. No. We can't. That's why I've been fighting so hard on this cancel student loans. Yes, it should be canceled. Oh, most definitely. It was totally predatory, and it certainly affects us disproportionately. You can argue all day. We shouldn't have to pay for school anyway. (laughs) 
Well, no, that's a whole other conversation. I'm being totally serious. Yeah. yeah. When, when people start talking about reparations, for instance, okay? Yeah. And, and America, America's government won't even discuss reparations for black people. No. Nope. Won't discuss it. And I'm, well, I'm not, I'm not talking about just giving somebody a check and letting them kick yeah. it for a year or two, and they're not financially literate anyway, and then they're broke. Here, here, here's what reparations would look like for me, at least a part of it. Education is the gateway. So when people start talking all this, look, well, college ain't for everybody. Well, it damn well better be. And don't be telling my kid that. All right. If You've never you heard a white person say that to another school. white person. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. If you don't, if you ain't instructing your child to aspire to go to to get a higher ed, and you can't just get a bachelor's degree now, man. No, you you gotta get master's degrees and doctors, JDs, PhDs, EDDs, MDs. You know, you you gotta be really, really balling. But we've been locked out of that for so long. For my for my thought is this. He'll be a part of reparations. What if black people, if you black, you can go to any college or university for free for the next hundred years? Love it. Let's see what we beat in. You enslaved right. us a lot longer than that. <laughs> that. Let, that, let, that, let, right. let, that education. Right. Yeah, so, well, slavery ended in 1865, but the legacy of slavery didn't. Right. Right. Legal slavery ended. But look, slavery still in effect in a lot of ways in this country. So you let us go to school free. So you talk about canceling student loans. They should cancel for all, for all black people because we shouldn't have had to pay anyway. Here right. in the state of Kentucky, man, do you know that the state gives the University of Louisville, again, using it as an example, $48 million a year less than it did in 2008? Okay, so these people talk about, oh, we value education. We're serious about education. No, you're not. You're not serious about education. Otherwise, you would fund higher education. You don't sure. do it. As state funding drops, they say it's a public school. This is really not a public school. OK, no. the state only gives the University of Louisville about 10 percent of its budget. That's it. But as that funding goes down, tuition costs go up. Now, our people are disproportionately poor because of racism. And so we don't have the resources to pay that money to go to school to so then. What you talking about, sister, daddy, getting into these, this loan debt. Yeah. Our children got to take out these loans and just try to go to school to try to make a decent life for themselves. And then they go into these racist campuses where the majority of the professors don't look like them. Right. right. It, look, you can go to these schools right now. And if you put your mind to it just a little bit, you can get a bachelor's degree, master's degree and a doctorate and never have a black professor. If you Absolutely. choose easily. But if you black, try doing that and never having a white professor. So they're right. going into these white supremacist spaces that are traumatizing our children. They're taking out these loans, but then they get traumatized. They can't survive them. They get driven out quite often. They ain't even getting degrees, but they got the debt. And then they don't have the professional acumen. They don't have the professional standing to, to earn the salaries to pay the doggone debt back. And then they in a pickle for, for a long time. Uh, big right. So you, so you, so you doggone right. They need to cancel uh, student loans, at least for black people. Let everybody else pay. <laughs> hey, I'm a complete advocate of that because while you were talking, I'm like, that's been my experience. Of course, when I was actually in Louisville, I uh, I applied for a doctoral program for the counseling department, and uh, you know I was accepted, and I was slated to uh, start back in was it 2015 or 2016, and uh, the only reason I I decided to do that because after my master's program, that experience. You're talking about trauma because I went to Spalding, <laughs> Spalding University, right? Yeah. To get, uh, yeah. So I was, after that experience and uh, 
I don't even want to take time to speak about that. I'll talk about that another time. But it was it was very interesting that all the black counselors uh, of that program and also some of the uh, well, most of the the uh, individuals that I spoke to that was actually in the counseling program at University of Louisville. They weren't getting jobs at JCPS as counselors, but there That's were uh, I mean, I'm going to just be honest. At the time, I was a university. Uh, well, Louisville Mail High School, and I was working with the behavior definitely be an advocate for, uh, you know, the, not only the black student population, but a, a lot of the student population, but I was the only black male at mail during the day. Uh, so I, I met this, you know, handling behavior and I, there happened to be a suicide in the district. And normally what happens when they have a suicide in the district, they uh, meet at one, uh, at least one location all the counselors get there and they'll just serve as extra, extra counselors for students if they need it. And this was after I graduated, couldn't find a, you know, a counseling job, went down to the board a number of times. I'm pretty sure they got tired of seeing me because I was like, there is no reason that I shouldn't be in a counseling position, especially when I've already had the rapport with the students. Actually, the other counselors at the school, all the staff members uh, were like, hey, you need to put him in this, this counseling position. But there was a new new uh, principal that came in, had their own agenda, and he literally said, no, although he may be qualified for it, I just want him to handle behavior. So I'm just like, okay, so hmm. this happens, but then I'm seeing all of these uh, these counselors come in across the district, and I'm seeing mostly, I'm just being real, the white women of the program that I was enrolled in, all of them had jobs. But when it came to the black students, none of us did. We either had to serve as instructors or teacher's assistants or deal with behavior or something sports related. Of course. So, <laughs> so you're thinking about that. Um, and, in, and being in those, uh, those spaces to where, um, like you go to you know the PWIs and you try to do the higher ed, ed thing and you're continuously traumatized by the environment that you're in. I had a, a, a professor at the University of Texas. Uh, one of the things uh, when I first got there, they make every student uh, study uh, black history. Oh, not black history, I wish, but Texas history. And uh, this uh, particular class, uh, it was an older white gentleman, and uh, I'll say that, uh, just that. But um, he decided to, you know, use the word, the word, nigga all the time when he was talking about certain things. And I was, I was one of, I think, five in that class. And the first time, I was there writing notes. And he said it, I was like, and I immediately looked at the other Black students, and they just still writing like nothing happened. And, uh, and my thing was, I know if I say something, I'm immediately be ostracized. So let me just show through action. So I got up and walked out. And then I addressed it later during his, his office hours. So the next time we had class, he said the N-word, but then he got comfortable again and said it again. So I'm like, I'm I'm literally forced to sit in this class. Because yeah. I went to the president, I went to the president, I went to a few other things, and nothing was done. What would make somebody want to continue to achieve? So then I get to University of Louisville and I'm ready to start this doctoral program. And at the time I was working with uh, the Office of Community Engagement with the uh, Go College. At that time, that program was supposed to get refunded 
at least what was, you know, told to uh, myself and my colleagues, but at pretty much at the end of the program over the Christmas break, they said, Hey, y'all no longer have a job when y'all come back. So although we promised y'all jobs and promised y'all this and that, we appreciate y'all's help, you know, best of luck. So once that happened, I'm thinking of loans. I'm thinking of what I experienced at Spalding at university of Texas, university of Arkansas. There is no way that I felt I was going to pay for more trauma. So I decided, I was like, you know what, since I've helped other people get their doctorals, uh, PhDs, I already know the format. Let me just apply it to myself. Hence, a conscientious conversation is actually part of a doctoral, uh, a doctoral piece. And when you talk about we shouldn't have to pay for education, I'm a strong advocate of that. Not only should we not have to pay for it, um, the, the, the reasons why we shouldn't have to pay for it should be addressed. Yeah. You bring about yeah. reparations. Yeah. You bring about the trauma that we have to deal with on a daily basis just to get, you know, this piece of paper that when it's all said and done, it's not really what you know, it's who you know. Um, so I know I went on a kind of tangent because I just know, you know, it's a passion area for me. Uh, you know, I've definitely worked with a lot of students over the years to make sure that they could get a higher education, and have a better chance at life. But there was always obstacles in the way. Always. Yeah. So, no, brother, yeah, you, you, you didn't you didn't go on too long. I don't think you went on long enough. I think it's an um, important thing. And I think so many of our people can relate to it because what you're really talking about is something we don't talk about enough is the trauma that we go through simply from being black in this country. Right. As you move into these more elite spaces, the more concentrated that trauma is. It is a painful conversation to have. This race thing, man, it affects us from the cradle to the grave. Right. You know? And, 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 and it's, it's not just going through the process to get your degrees that's traumatic. You know, it's it's also traumatic even if you do get a job and you get into a space and then you're trying to maintain your humanity, dealing with people who are making decisions about your future who don't look like you and don't care about you. And to add to this, let me try to say this uh, gently, Sister Dana, so nobody don't get mad at me on y'all podcast. <laughs> okay. Speak freely, man. But it's a, a conscious conversation. Speak freely. <laughs> it pains me to think about, you know, it, it's so good for the three of us to get together, right? To, to talk and embrace one another virtually. And, and we always do that with, with like-minded brothers and sisters. There's a, there's a comfort to that. There's a warmth to that, right? There's a, a reaffirmation about that. But it's painful, man, to think about how many of our people have been broken out here in this process. Right. Broken to the point where you, Sister Dana, you, Brother CJ, you be in these spaces, whether it's in Texas, Arkansas, you know, Louisiana, Kentucky, Georgia, New York, Washington State. You be in these spaces and you have white brothers and sisters who are suffering from white supremacy coming at you. But then you have some black brothers and sisters who've been broken by white supremacy who will come at you, too. Right. <laughs> They'll, they'll sell you down the river for a chicken wing, man. you know, right. and, 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 and will cast you 
as the radical, as the troublemaker, as the bad Negro, as the person to be avoided. And so these people will spiritually kill you and tell you it's your fault. Mm. And, and, and that, you know, so it's one thing to be black. It's another thing to be strong and black. <laughs> Man, they don't want to see that. They do not want to see Look, that. If you're strong and black, you one better be incredibly professionally strategic. You better be highly educated and skilled. You better be cognizant of everybody in your life, not just the people around you in the office space, but the people around you personally. If you are a if you are a seriously strong black woman, not 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 some black woman run around making TikTok videos talking about she's strong and she did that and the other. I mean, what are you doing? I mean, you know, look, that, that's that's playing a game. You, your Instagram model talking about you strong. Okay, Harriet Tubman was strong. She did. I mean, what have you done? Right. Let's be real about that. But if you're a real serious strong sister, you better have a strong brother in your life that you can go home to for some comfort. If you're a real strong brother. You better have a strong, conscious sister that you can go home to for some comfort. I told one of my exes, man, I was like, baby, I, you know, I can't go out here and fight these white folks all day. And they come back and home, come and, home fight. and fight you all night. Man, tell you. So you will be here all day. <laughs> you got to be careful in every area of your life. Right. You strong and black just to stay alive because it's putting us in the grave. Since right. Dana used to be here all day with that one. <laughs> oh, you trying to solve the world's problems. Hey. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep us alive and loved, man. Hey, that's it. You make a great point, though. Just, uh, you know, the, the circle you keep around you really, really, uh, it really matters. Ooh, uh, you know, I'm a man of faith and I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily religious, but at the same time, you no know, respect to all, but as you know, a passage that talks about fertile soil and, you know, uh, you know, certain environments I have recognized, you know, although I came with, you know, the, the seed of hope and trying to, you know, plant it in. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, on the, on, on the outside looking in, there may have been a, you know, thorns that I didn't see that smothered that sense of hope yeah. uh, or it could have been shallow soil underneath that soil that I didn't see. Cause I was just looking on surface level when I really got ingrained into it. I'm like this, I can only grow so much because yeah. of, you know, the atmosphere, uh, you know, a lot of brothers that I speak to, uh, I say it, it started. I mean, I, I just say actually since uh, when they were doing um, like welfare, I think we really started to get a sense of how things were going to go, mm-hmm. edging out the black men of the, of the home just for someone else to come in and be the head of the house, uh, just overall. So here we come, uh, you know, this, you know, 2021, um, the sense of self-worth, the, self, the, the sense of self-identity, and uh, we can talk about a lot of senses of self and et cetera. Uh, and you, you bring a, str- a great point. I was trying to s- explain to uh, you know many of my my female constituents and colleagues about the issue of uh, dating these days. <laughs> Why are we against each other? Why? 
there is a a sense i went to a uh a poetry event in uh in lexington and it's, it's not to you know knock this this uh this organization or anything else but it was a uh a poetry event called wow women of poetry and i'm going literally to support the arts and women but then i go into the space and when you know other ethnicities may speak like okay you know my last relationship was bad i learned from it you know i'll try to overcome but then when it got to uh you know some of my you know my black sisters uh they literally had the uh at one point half the crowd chanting n words ain't nothing but they said h-i-t Mm-hmm. And I'm like, here I am trying to support. How can I sit here and support? And I'm being told this. <laughs> Why? Th- this ago, I'm like, Black Regal. Like, let's talk about the richness and the royalty of us. How can I stay in a, in a space, try to support, and you're literally condemning the people that support, but you're saying that Black men don't show up? Where's the consistency? Yeah, brother, you know, we... We have all been so damaged, right, by by this environment that, that we've been dropped down into for whatever divine purpose we've been dropped into it. I'm sure there is a purpose like you. I have a very strong belief in God. I think there is a purpose for everything. We may not understand it by the time we pass from, from this existence, from this plane. But I think for us and our sisters, man, and, and you know, any sister that I get involved with now you know i wasn't always this emotionally mature any sister i get involved with now because i mean i'm not a narcissist man i I, and i have to understand that i'm I'm a project i'm an evolving project as are we all um i have not been the boy next door in my life so i own my stuff Right. And so there's some things that I have done in my life that have been good, but still fell short. And there have been some other situations where I've just been dead wrong. So I don't mind telling a sister, I don't mind being wrong sometimes. I ain't going to be wrong all the doggone time. Man. We Something wrong if I'm wrong all the time and you're right, then <laughs> well, that's not going to work. Right. But I'm, I'm, I'm clear with any sister that, that, that I'm with now. You know, I can't change my past. I can't change your past. But if we going to spend some time together, if we're going to build something that's substantive, that's serious, then we got to grant each other some grace. Right. We got to be committed to taking care of each other. We got to be mature enough to understand that we're going to have some pitfalls because both of us individually, like our people, we're damaged. Right. But we can't be sitting here damaging each other more. And this stuff is important, man, because we're social animals. Still, people can talk about interracial dating. They, they want all they want to talk about. But the majority of black men and black women are with one another if they're with anybody. And so we can't be going around condemning sisters and sisters can't be going around blankly condemning us. Exactly. And we got to be able to say to one another, hey, brother, you wrong there. Hey, sister, you wrong there. And have friends around us, too. Right. Who going to check us on that? Because, yeah. you know, sister, if you do wrong. You got to have some mature sisters in your life who going to be like, hey, Dana, you need to check yourself right here. Absolutely. Me and CJ got to have some brothers in our lives who going to say, hey, CJ, hey, Ricky, you wrong there, man. Right. I mean, sister right on that one. You you, you got to check yourself. You can't have 
have nobody who always gonna agree with you. Yeah, you know that that ninja ain't this and that da da da. You should have left his behind a long time ago, Gaga. You gonna end right. up by yourself? Yeah, well, yeah. You know, end up by yourself with a lesser cat. Yeah, with a lesser dude or a lesser woman. But you know, hey, look, man. I always say the more conscious you are, the more in touch you are, the stronger you are, the smaller your dating pool is. That's going to be a small pool. You Look, man, you can't be my woman. And I'm sitting here talking to CJ and Dane about the serious future of black people. And you, my woman, you worry about making TikTok videos. Well. You, you, you know, we, we, we're not equally yoked. You know, we're not equally yoked. I'm, I'm building. I have made sure my daughter's mother and I are not together. But we have a mature, healthy, peaceful relationship as parents. You 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 can't be my woman if you want to disrupt that. Yeah. You 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 can't be my woman if you got a child because I'm going to accept your child as my own. But you you got a terrible relationship with your 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 baby's father, and you don't want to work on that. That's not healthy stuff. And so we as black people, I think, have to always be very conscious of all of that, man. Because who you who you close your eyes next to, and who you open them next to, man, that's important. That is important because that energy can drive you over the edge. Right. And as Forrest Gump said, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> awesome. That wraps right on up. I appreciate your, your perspective and, you know, a lot of things you brought up because it's definitely a topic that uh, are less likely to be discussed, especially uh, across the board, but definitely subject areas that need to be discussed. Family. Uh, we done ran the gamut, haven't we? I mean, we yeah. don't talk about everything. From, we don't talk from Booker T. Washington to Mansa Musa to, you know, potential <laughs> marriage to potential mate. <laughs> we have run the Hey, man, I appreciate y'all so much. I appreciate y'all for awesome. letting me hang out with you. It's, it's, it's been a blessing. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you for coming, John. man. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate you. And we'll, we may call you back. We may call you back. So stay tuned. Yeah, yeah, I got my number, man. Don't don't be putting it, you know, on Instagram or nothing. But y'all can use it whenever you want to. <laughs> <laughs> we won't put you out there like that, man. <laughs> so, no doubt. Well, we'll hey, definitely man. have to do a part two to this. So, you know, I appreciate hey. your time and, you know, I respect your time. So anytime. Hey, I love y'all, man. I love y'all to death. So you know, keep doing the important work that you do and. You know, don't please don't be strangers. You know, let me hang out with you whenever because you know I'm half crazy. I need somebody like y'all to pull me back from the brink. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's what we're here for. Support you in all efforts and in that. Gotcha. Also, how can people support you? Uh, just at you know University of Louisville or just professionally? Uh, how can you know we're gonna we won't disperse your number, but no, how no, can no. you know how can people support you and how can they uh, you know contact you? If, okay, uh, you know, it needs you, you, you look, you can keep track of me in a number of ways. You can shoot me a direct email, ricky.jones, no E, R C K Y dot Jones at louisville.edu. If you want to shoot me an email, I do most of my social media work on Twitter. That's at Dr. Ricky L. Jones. Uh, you can also check me out on Facebook. I need more Instagram followers. I don't really mess with Instagram that much. Uh, but you can you can find me there. Um, if you want to give something to the Pan-African Studies Department, you know, we always need your financial support. Please go to Louisville.edu, Louisville.edu. That's the University of Louisville's website. You know, get to the Pan-African Studies website and maybe contribute a little bit of money to us. That would be great. 
Um, if you want, I write a biweekly column in the Courier Journal, USA Today Network. You can catch that um, every two weeks. Um, you can go to rickyljones.com, which is my personal website, and you can find all that information on that. There, there are books there, columns there. You know, you want to read uh, a few, few of the books that I've written and hundreds of columns. There are links to all of that stuff. Some of it you might have to pay a little bit for, but, you know, do it to your heart's content. Uh, videos there, all of that stuff, however you want to keep up. So, and, you know, man, also from time to time, CJ, I'm sure you know this. I'm also a wrestling manager now with Ohio Valley Wrestling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, my wrestling, me and my man, Tony Bizzo, you can catch us every Thursday. Uh, on WBNA 21 here, Fight TV, it also broadcasts in Lexington across the state. You can catch it all over the country. So that's the fun thing. So, yes, I write books. I write columns. You know, I, I have my own radio show, iHeart uh, Radio, which is um, on hiatus right now. But I do all of that stuff. I'm a, and, and I'm a wrestling manager. <laughs> I, I try, <laughs> to keep it, try to keep it diverse. That, that's, that's my fun thing. So I know that's a lot. Um, but if you just go out and put in Ricky L. Jones, a lot will come up. And I appreciate everybody supporting every way. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you again. We'll follow yeah. you. Please support this man. I'm in full support and, uh, you know, continue, uh, continue to work. Uh, you know, I wish you the best. And I know I you'll be you, prosperous. Brother. So I thank you. I thank you. Same to y'all, man. Y'all keep on doing it. You know, stay black, stay strong and stay sane. Okay. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. We're going to do All our right. best much, on that. Thank you. Right. Much love, family. Likewise. All right. In closing, once again, I appreciate you all for your attention, and we will join you together again next conversation. I hope this message reaches you well and helps you along the way. Be encouraged and make this day, evening, or night a great time. Until next time, I appreciate you. Nothing ever was handed, all about respect, never about ego. Wish I could have retired a long time ago and disappeared way beyond the trees. But my homies kept influencing me, said they needed to hear my lyrics, like my flow, cause they felt my spirit. Plus, the people needed to hear it. A conversation with conscientious lyrics.